Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading Short and Deep, An Express of the Future uh, by Jules Verne or Michel Verne. Um, it's, it's published, the version we're reading is published in the Strand Magazine, December 1895. And it doesn't say by Jules Verne, but it says from the French of Jules Verne, which is kind of a tricky way of describing who wrote the story it's not super clear to me who's right about this but i'm not sure that that's the most important thing about the story either who wrote it exactly what do you think well um (laughs) you kind of i always kind of want to have some sense of the provenance of things that i read because the same thing can take on different meanings depending upon the, the original language, the culture, the time period. Uh, usually the language itself marks that. So if you read, um, let's say, uh, they also serve who only stand and wait. Uh, a lot of people think it comes from the Bible, but it doesn't. It comes from Milton, and some people have a little bit of trouble telling the difference between, you know, <laughs> that 50 year period. But, you know, it, but it really, you know, the language does sort of, you know, it brings you back to someone who has a religious viewpoint. It brings you back to England it gets you back to the, uh, the 17th century. Um, it's, it's, it's not a bad sense. The closer we get to the present, the more important, the, the more refined becomes our automatic sense of where and when something was written. So it's quite easy, for example, for a current reader to tell the difference between something written around 2000 and something written around 1970. So 30 years becomes distinguishable, whereas the long distance, we might not be able to distinguish 60 or even 100 years. But that's just our inexperience as readers. Um, the reason that I mention that is that this is a terrible translation, I think. Mm, yeah. um, and to the extent that that I think of this as a story like Jules Verne's stories, which, uh, I mean, although he, he published into the 20th century, um, his great stories with which we mostly associate him, <clears throat> excuse me, are published from about 1860-something on uh, mm-hmm. to maybe 1880. Or, you know, there's a 20-year period tops when he's publishing his great works, like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And this story, uh, Express of the Future, is Under the Sea. You kind of want to know what the state of technology is that mm-hmm. is behind a story like this, which tells a lot about technology. And if it were the sun that would move it up uh, or down, depending on how you look at it, in chronology. Um, and it's clear that, that the son, who, as I'm sure you know, was a, sort of a – he was not a gentleman. <laughs> he, was <an> obstre- <laughs> he was an obstreperous child, and he was not all that good a person when he grew up. But he knew that his father was very famous. So according to the things that I have been able to track down – 
most Verne scholars now believe that this particular story and about eight others that were published in Le Figaro, um, a newspaper, were in fact written by by Michel Verne. Um, however, apparently the story goes when he submitted it to the Strand or someone submitted it to the Strand to sell the English language rights, <clears throat> it was submitted by M. Period Vale, mm-hmm. which could be, you know, the abbreviation yeah, for yeah. exactly. So mm-hmm. the Strand just thought, no, nah, well, you know, we know who Monsieur Vale is, is Jules Vale. And, uh, and so they published it that way. Besides which, Jules Verne would be more likely to attract buyers for the Strand than would Michelle Vaughn. Who the hell is Michelle Vaughn? So it kind of makes a difference, I think, in this case. Um, it is a story. Well, <clears throat> it's a story about a guy, <clears throat> excuse me, who finds himself shown a, uh, a pneumatic transportation system that presumably goes from Boston to Liverpool in under four hours. Mm-hmm. You get into a capsule and you get shot across. And the story, which is quite short, sounds like hard SF. There's an explanation for how the thing works. And then at the end, the guy sort of realizes that this whole exploration of the modern technology was just a dream. And that's that. Um, sounds kind of weak. Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing that makes me kind of like it is that although most of the story is this description of, you know, the technology involved that we do it this way and we do it that way. And how do you slow it down enough so that people don't uh, suffer from the deceleration and all of that. Um, what I like best is the very last line. Um, I mean, he's thinking about, he feels his face and his face is moist and he's worried that this subterranean and so, as well as submarine, um, tube has begun to crack and water is coming in. Fear seized upon me, terrified. I tried to call out and, and, and I found myself in my garden generously sprinkled by a driving rain, the big drops of which had awakened me. I had simply fallen asleep while reading the article devoted by an American journalist to the fantastic projects of Colonel Pierce, that is his guide in this dream through all of this uh, discussion of the new technology. I had simply fallen asleep while reading the article devoted by an American tech journalist to the fantastic projects of Colonel Pierce, who also, I much fear, has only dreamed. And that's what I love about the story. Mm. And, and because, you know, so many unimaginative or inadequately imaginative stories end with, but it was all a dream. Oh, well, right. it was just a dream. And then I woke up, you know, whatever. And it really, it doesn't get you very far. But this story, whether it's by Jules or Michel, it doesn't just say, I woke up. And it says, and that other guy was a dreamer too. And it suddenly makes you think the whole notion of dreaming gets called into question. Is dreaming, in fact, a dismissal, a dismissal, excuse me, um, a dismissal of an idea, well, it's just a dream, or 
is dreaming actually the germ of an idea? Is it the beginning of what will eventually become reality? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I like that. I mean, the story itself doesn't doesn't much grab me, but suddenly I look back at it because of that last line, and I think, ah, which way is this Vern, whoever it is, trying to go? Now, I know the answer if it's the father, because the father always sees these things as plausible. So my own belief is that the scholars who have concluded that this is by Michelle are correct. This does not strike me as a Jules Verne story. But to return to your initial question, if I weren't trying to ask myself questions of authorship, but just trying to read the story, I'd only be concerned with its its provenance. I wouldn't be concerned, particularly whether it was the father or the son. I'd interpret it without having to decide on the basis of other works that I'd read by the same author. Mm. Uh, before we started, uh, I was telling you how much trouble I have with the title. I ah. keep mis- misremembering it as an express to the future rather than an express of the future. Um, I, I, I like thinking about why the 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 differences are between those two, what the difference of meaning is. And then, of course, that brings us back to what the, the meaning of the title is. Um, but I, I'm also, I mean, I'm generally interested in stories like this, um, not just because they have beautiful illustrations showing fabulous technologies, right? Uh, the Strand magazine had wonderful illustrations for such stories as this. And indeed, this one has three beautiful illustrations. Um, but uh, I also like to think about um what people go what people do wrong when they think about what science fiction is and if this is science fiction which is questionable based on its its ending right um it's sort of a meta science fictional story um an express of the future um is actually a pretty good title whereas an express to the future um might not be as good a title if you see what i mean uh-huh. So, um, if we are taken on a voyage to what the future will be, which is a transatlantic tunnel, right, um, uh, where people get in in Boston and get out at Liverpool, this was not in the offing in the late 19th century and, and still didn't happen in the 20th century. Uh, I think they, you know, replaced it with te- technologies that are a little less... Uh, um, capital intensive airplanes and ships and dirigibles and all that stuff but um, there's still something appealing about it I mean this the channel tunnel which was I, I think it was complete yeah it was completed in the 20th century is this pretty much it's not pneumatic tubes right but it is um, a, a tunnel under the sea you know instead of going on the ship and hazarding the weather you can go underground and and enjoy your train car and have a lunch. Huh. Right? So that there's all sorts of fun stuff about uh, examining what the future can be like. But then I also I also get really frustrated with people who who think of it like this is this is people predicting the future. And what's so hilarious is, of course, this story doesn't predict anything as much as just describes what could be 
Um, so th if you do a little research, um, pneumatic tubes had been around for a long time, obviously. Uh, they used them for mail systems and such. But there was actually a demonstration train by uh, a guy um, named Alfred Ellie Beach. I wanted to say Alfred Ellie Bleach just because it fits with the, <laughs> the name-playing game that uh, I guess both Vern's father and the son love to play. Um, and his he invented a pneumatic uh, transit tube that was in New York and, like, functioned in the 1860s, which is pretty cool. It was not, you know... Uh, super long but people could get in it just as they do in this story and travel uh back and forth <laughs> it's cool right so the difference here is only in scale and in the framing of it as a as a dream it's there's no invention here but if if you like look at what people i don't know journalists on the internet uh have written about uh when they talk about this story they're saying, ah, this is Elon Musk, and the Hyperloop was predicted by... Right? No. <laughs> Elon Musk is the dreamer who's saying, I'm going to build a Hyperloop, but he's not... There's no prediction because he hasn't built the Hyperloop, and this is not... He wasn't planning to make it across uh, the Atlantic Ocean. As far as I know, it's just across the United States. Actually, so, he's also planning to do it in Europe, but he only wants it to be terrestrial, in part right. because he wants to keep the cost down, so he wants sure. to have elevated tubes the way we have elevated trains. Um, and and it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, Makes a lot of sense. Uh, what you're saying is undoubtedly true of the father. I don't know much of the work of the son. Uh, the most famous predictions of of Jules Verne are all predictions of the past, or right. they are predictions that are satiric. So, for example, in From the Earth to the Moon, we have uh, a ballistic rocket that presumably reaches escape velocity. And, and Verne had a mathematician whom he consulted on a regular basis to work these things out. And of course, he knew that a ballistic rocket, right, it, it gets one shot and like a bullet, and then it goes. Well, for a bullet to go fast enough to be able to hit the 25 miles an hour, 25,000 miles per hour necessary for escape velocity, a human being inside that bullet would be turned into jelly. So <laughs> the whole idea behind it is itself satiric. Um, similarly, um, in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, we have everybody going, oh, my God, how could there possibly be a submarine monitor, meaning an ironclad ship like the, the, the monitor that the, uh, the northern states had in the Civil War, um, which was 10 years or actually about five years earlier than the publication of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. But in fact, there was an actual functional submarine that took part in the American Civil War. And, the Hunley, and, is that the one you're thinking of? Exactly. And yeah. anybody who was really interested in new technology would have read about these things. So so Vern either, certainly Vern the father, was either predicting the past. <laughs> He's just saying, well, we've got this stuff, but we're going to make it really fancy and, you know, mm -hmm. we, you know, bigger. Exactly. Bigger, niftier, cuter, whatever. We're going to... 
we're going to predict the past by ramping up things we already have, or we're going to make fun of somebody using the technology, or sometimes both. The same technology will, will do both those things. For example, in uh, the sequel to Earth to the Moon, when they manage to come back from uh, the moon, they break out of orbit, and the capsule that the, the humans are in comes down and breaks off the bowsprit of a United States frigate. So, you know, it's like, you know, you can't win for losing, right? You mm-hmm. think you got a new technology, it's screwing up. How are you going to get out of there now, folks? Um, Vern is a satirist, which most people don't recognize. And that, frankly, is one of the reasons that I think we have to read the hard SF carefully in an express of the future. Um, because the same problems that apply that might apply with those ballistic missiles. Um, this thing is supposed to go at what speed? 1800 kilometers an hour. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. 1800 kilometers an hour, which is uh, at its top speed. And uh, 1800 kilometers an hour is, I did the math, uh, a little under 1120 miles per hour which puts it substantially beyond the sound barrier, so-called. Now, we know that things can travel past the sound barrier, but we can't make air go past the sound barrier. We can push things through air at faster than the sound barrier, but you can't make air go faster than the sound barrier unless you're applying more force all the time. But this story says, no, no, we just have gas turbines that are pushing the air forward. Well, sorry, folks, gas turbines can't do that, never could do that, wouldn't be able to do that, and that was perfectly well known in 1888. And one of the reasons they knew it is because, as you said, since 1866, there were pneumatic systems in in use in some of the major cities of the world, not only New York, but London and Paris. And in Paris, you know, you go into the post office and you could mm-hmm. get a stamp to send a letter the usual way. But if you wanted it to get sent really fast, you went by pneumatique, right? The French pronunciation of pneumatic. And by paying more, you could have your item delivered in a little container the way we use, you know, in bank ATMs and uh, so on. Um, you could have it delivered within half an hour. Um, It turns out, according to the stuff I read, that at the height of the use of this system in 1934, there were over 270 miles of pneumatic tubes running around in Paris. Hmm. So, um, yes, there were some that could, could push a human being. In London, there was one that actually could transport a human being. They didn't use it for that. And as you said, in New York, they tried out a train system uh, this is 1866 is when this stuff is starting. This this piece is published probably in 1888 in Le Figaro, if uh, the scholars are right. I don't know that they are, by the way. Uh, mm-hmm. Le Figaro is available online through uh, – uh, it's available online if you have the right permissions, and I do. So I went to the September 1st, 1888 edition of Le Figaro and could not find the story. Mm-hmm. Um, but – I, you know, 
I didn't do archival research. I won't say it's not there. But if it's 1888, that's 22 years after Paris has begun using pneumatic tubes. Mm-hmm. This is hardly inventing anything new unless the aim is to be satiric and get us to think, what do we think we're doing with these new technologies? Which may be the case, because after Colonel Pierce, in the dream we later find out, has really gotten revved up to explain what's going on and how wonderful it'll be to go so rapidly from one place to another. Um, the guy who's doing the dreaming set calls this vision a utopia. Yeah. You know, so right away we raise those questions. Is it really a good place or is it just a satire of the kind of life we live now? That kind of subtlety sort of argues more for Vern the father than Vern the son. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I don't know. I tried like heck to find the original of this, and, and I couldn't. That's how come I was able to discover that it wasn't in the online version of Le Figaro. But the French, I mean, everybody seems to agree that the French title is uh, Un Express de, la, de l'Avenir, which which you know, you were wondering about what the title means. Should it be um, of or uh, had, had, what were the two options you gave it? I, 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 the title is An Express of the Future, but I, I thought of it as An Express to the Future, as in I, I misrecalled the title. Right. An Express to the Future is more like a train, right? This is a train that takes you from the present into the future. Um, right. In reading the, right. In reading the article in, in the paper... The uh, narrator has, you know, taken a train from the present into the future with this amazing technology that Colonel Pierce is working on. Whereas an express of the future uh, has the right. slightly different meaning, which I think may be even more interesting. Um, well, that this is an expression I, of the future. Well, there's a third not just option. A, an express letter. As in, you know, or an express train, right? right. But it turns out there's a third option. Mm-hmm. Um, the French uh, word de, de, um, can mean of, as in uh, une table um, uh, d'or, uh, a table of gold. Mm-hmm. Um, but de also means from. Je suis des États-Unis. I am from the United States. The French title of this story is Une Express de l'Avenir. That third option, and I think the one that would be understood by a Frenchman is, it's an express from the future, not of the future or to the future. And once I realized that this thing was execrably translated, (laughs) I began to, to question these things. And although I couldn't find the original, some of these mistranslations, I think, are uh, are inferable by looking backwards through how they got to this terrible translation. Uh, for example, um, it, it, our our narrator says, you know, where was I? What was I doing here? What was going on? That's, I guess, a given way that we'll later find out he was in a dream, although I'm thinking that's dumb how can you not know where you are and why but as he's thinking colonel pierce starts to talk to him he says in thought i realized the newspaper article what do you mean you realized it 
what the hell, what kind of a word is that? Right. I mean, to realize means I suddenly was aware of something or it means in English to make it real. He realized his dreams. Right? He made them into reality. But in French, réaliser means to make something concrete. Right? We talk about the réalisation of a movie. You know, the person who is, in fact, uh, the, the, the guy who puts it all together. Right? He says, I, in thought, I realized the newspaper article. What it really meant was, in thought, I recalled the newspaper article. It came back to my mind. That would be a, a much more reasonable translation. And then it says the very next word, complacently, the journalist mm. entered into the details of the enterprise. Well, complacency in English means, okay, I'm willing to do it. You know, I'll acquiesce. Uh, and there's an older, less common meaning, which is um, to be friendly about it. Um, what a complacent personality he had. He was just so easygoing. But in French, complacent means it comes from con plaisir, with pleasure. When you do something complacently, it means, ah, yes, I'd love to do it for you. Well, you know, the, the book is, sorry, the story is just full of things like that. So I had to ask myself, what the heck have they screwed up? Right. They have, for example, left accent marks over the word kilometer. Right. Right. That never was the case in English, at least according to the Oxford English Dictionary. We never used it with an X with it. Right. It, it talks about how this transportation system is two gigantic submarines tubes. Right. Right. Well, the reason, of course, is that in French, the noun and the adjective have to agree in number and gender. So if it were tube submarin, it would be T-U-B-E-S. S-U-B-M-A-R-I-N-E-S. You just wouldn't pronounce either of the S's. But it would be tube submarin because they have to agree. Translating to English, the S on submarines should go away. It didn't. Right? Whoever wrote, whoever did this translation was terrible. Yeah. It's terrible. <laughs> so many terrible things about the. I, I mean, I was thinking about the, the different meanings of of and from and to. Um, to the French of Jules Verne, it fits perfectly well with this story as well. Of the <laughs> French of Jules Verne, yeah, pretty much. I mean, the shoddiness of the the copy editing is is um only mirror matched by the greatness of the illustrations, right? So there's a, <laughs> a kind of sloppiness um to let's get this Jules Verne story in because Jules Verne's great and uh, the story's okay. <laughs> and we've got this great illustrator who can make it fly off the shelves, right? I mean, uh, I, I love the detail put into the illustrations. And it, it, it is. It is the realization of of these, yeah, wouldn't, you know, this guy's invented um, tubes that allow you to uh, move humans back and forth a few meters in New York. That's cool. And, of course, we use them uh, to send kittens and letters and jam and all sorts of things through the post in in paris and london um but uh imagine sending people through tubes in the ocean no more terrible ocean voyages and and it has all that sort of fun satire uh, satire of of it and i i do like the sort of cliche ending of oh it was all a dream um well you know, he's, like he's gotten all that. wet 
I like right. it because of the extra, because of that extra half sentence. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so I yeah. agree with you. I like it, but I like it because, and I also much fear that Colonel Pierce has only dreamed because that makes the last word. I wish I had the original. That makes the last words of the story only dreamed. And mm-hmm. so while the story looks like it may be an express from the future or an express to the future or an express of the future, um, what the story as a whole is telling us is that the future now is a dream. And if you are interested in the future, you need to pay attention to dreams. It's in a way a story that undercuts itself. But there's always more to say. <laughs> <laughs>